Well, I hope that you do. Go ahead and turn with me to the book of the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Luke, chapter 3. Luke, the third chapter. Verse 21 and 22 is where we find ourselves. And last week I told you that we would spend, Lord willing, we were going to spend two weeks here. Uh, the first week looking just at the, uh, the structure of the verse, and that's what we did last week. Just looked at the structure of it and examined um, the, uh, uh, where, where it is located in the Gospel of Luke and the application for us as believers and why it's given to us. This week I want to do something a little different. I want to actually look at the doctrinal, uh, I, want to, I want to evaluate it doctrinally here from a, from a biblical perspective, and I want us to look at the doctrine of the Trinity this morning, uh, because it's clearly laid out for us here. So Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Luke 3, 21 and 22. And let me say this, if you're physically able to do so, I do want to invite you to stand with me one final time as we honor the ring of God's holy and written word, just for these two verses, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Hear the word of the Lord that is given to you and I this morning. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying. The heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily shape or form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we come face to face with. We ask that you help us as we look at the doctrinal truths that are presented here for us that you would help us to honor you in doing that, and by doing that, that Christ would be exalted and glorified in this, that the gospel would clearly be seen, and that, Father, you would be clearly honored, and, Holy Spirit, that you would be obeyed, and that you would teach us and guide us through the word. And we pray this now for the sake of your name and for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you can be seated. So when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, let, let's just sort of be, let's be honest with, our, with, with each other. I think if you were to poll, or, and actually maybe not poll, let's not, let's not use the word poll. Let's use the word just simply ask. If you were to ask 10 average Christians in 10 average churches to explain to you or define for you in any way the doctrine of the Trinity, you would probably get, 10 different definitions and 10 different conversations. Uh, and each, and let's be even more honest with each other, these would range from the mostly orthodox, that's the, the right belief, right, what scripture teaches, to the downright heresy, right? You would get everything in between those two answers. You would get the, the orthodox, the right teaching, the biblical teaching, down to anything that, uh, that is completely not biblical, and so if this doctrine, though, is so inherent in Scripture, right, why is it that we do not spend more time thinking, discussing, contemplating, and applying it correctly? And I would, I would offer to you what St. Augustine said in his work on the Trinity, in no other subject is error more dangerous, inquiry more difficult, or the discovery of truth more rewarding. And I think it's true. Obviously, it's true because there have been heresies throughout church history, uh, heresies uh, that have been wide-ranging. And so we, we want to be careful, and I think because of that, people are, and because it is a difficult doctrine to comprehend and to discuss, um, people tend to shy away. And yet, from the earliest days, from the earliest days of the apostles, the Trinity, though it maybe wasn't called the Trinity, but the idea of the Godhead 
right? The, the, the Trinitarian Godhead has never been in doubt. It has always been accepted. It has always been taught. It has always been the, the stalwart of, of doctrinal truth apart from Christ. Apart from what do you do with Christ? What do you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and who Christ is and what Christ came to do on earth? And so I think for us, we need to start there. When we're talking about the Trinity, right? What, what, what is it that exactly that we're, we're saying? Well, I, th- I think we have to understand when we talk about the Trinity, having, a do- having a, just a definition of the Trinity is, is somewhat difficult. So I would say that rather than coming up with some sort of a concoction of definition, here are the four essential affirmations that we have to affirm from the Bible. And we'll talk about these more later. But one, we must acknowledge that Scripture, in fact, does teach that there is one and only one true and living God. But scripture also teaches that there is in this one God eternally existing three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that these persons are completely equal in all of their attributes, each with the same divine nature, one not above the other, one not more valuable than the other, one not more hierarchical than the other, but all of the same. And the last one would be this. Well, each person, each person, right, is fully and completely God. These persons are not identical. I think these are the four affirmations when we talk about this. And I think this is why when we look through history, the church has grappled with this. They came up with or the, one, of the, one of the earliest statements from the, from the 400s. Uh, it was the Nicene Creed in the 300s and certainly was Trinitarian in its, in its understanding but in the 400s, there is the Athanasian Creed that, has, that, that came about and the church accepted and embraced it and, uh, by and large. And so what, do we, what does it say? I think this is why we look back and we say from the earliest senses of this word that there was some struggle to understand the Trinity properly. And so this is what the Athanasian Creed affirms. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. We distinguish among the persons, but we do not divide the substance. The entire three persons are co-equal, co-eternal with one and, and co-eternal with one another, so that we worship complete unity in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Some of you have probably already fallen asleep, I'm sure. <laughs> you, you do not have a clue of what I'm talking about. And that's okay. Because let me say this, let me talk to you about the importance of why we even want to I want to spend time talking about this. One is because there is such misunderstanding about the Trinity. Two, because it's in our text. And this is the good thing about, about expositional preaching, right? We go through a text, or we go through a book of the Bible at a time, Lord willing, and, and as we come to, to, to these passages, we deal with them. But then there are doctrinal themes that come along too, and so we get to deal with them. And so we happen to be in Luke chapter, by God's providence, in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, and therein is, in fact, the doctrine of the Trinity that's presented for us. It is interesting to me that I mentioned 10 different average Christians and 10 different average churches would have a difficulty probably coming up with any type of consensus concerning the Trinity. Well, let me, let me do you one better than that. A scientific poll was done by Ligonier Ministries uh, last year, and guess what they found? That, of, that 19% of self-identifying Christians do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, even more staggering, another 11% just don't know. I, there's a lot of things you cannot know, 
But how do you not know if you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? I don't know that. But they clearly did not know if they believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are still yet of those 19% that do in fact reject the Trinity. Many who reject the Trinity do so because they say, well, you know, the word Trinity is never really found in the Bible, to which I would say, well, then, sir, you or madam, you have a severe problem there because you will never find the word Bible in the Bible either. So if we go around just nitty-gritty throwing things out because it's not found in the Bible, then we've got lots of different problems, words. So just because the name Trinity doesn't appear does not mean that it is not clearly taught in Scripture. Clearly, it is taught in Scripture. As we see here in Luke chapter 3, what do we clearly have here in Luke chapter 3? In Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, we have Jesus being baptized and praying as he's coming up out of the water. We have the Holy Spirit descending upon him in bodily form like a dove. And we have ultimately the Father whose voice comes from heaven. And so what is this doctrine of Trinity, of the Trinity that we are talking about? Well, the unity of the, and the distinctions of the Godhead, I think we have to be very clear about. And that is, again, what we go back to, what, what I said earlier, which is that God is not divided into parts. God is one, and he is of one essence. He is not many, he is one. And from this one, then we understand that from this one, there are three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This has, from beginning to ending, from Old Testament to New Testament, because some would say, well, the doctrine of the Trinity is a New Testament teaching. The answer to that is absolutely not. We'll look at a few of those, those places in the Old Testament here in a few minutes. But the doctrine of the Trinity is chucked full throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And we fully understand, we fully understand that God is one in essence, and yet within this essence, however he does it, he is three distinct Persons. Now, we don't use the word persons like, you know, I would say you are a person and you are a person and I'm a person and therefore we're different persons. But we use it in the sense of perhaps better would be subsistences, would be that God is three distinct subsistences. But because we don't go around using that word very much, I would simply say, how about persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The church as a whole struggled with this doctrine, not to, not not whether it was true or not, but to explain it in such a correct way. And so the concept of the Trinity, though, appears very early on in the apostolic teachings, very early on within the Pauline teachings and other teachings, and it's very clear that, that as Paul and John and, and Jude and all the other apostles and all the other writers of the New Testament speak of God, they speak of God in very different ways. Ways They speak of him in the sense of being a triune, in a triune relationship, this triune relationship existing between the Father and the Son and the, the Holy Spirit, or the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church has never not believed this. And by church, I don't mean the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, but rather the Bible-believing churches throughout history. Early Christian apologists in the second century picked up this theme. Justin Martyr and Tertullian defended the faith against philosophical and religious challenges and began elaborating on the doctrine of the Trinity. The adoption of the Nicene Creed in 325 AD during the Council of Nicaea, the bishops from across Christendom gathered to resolve this heresy that is known as Arianism that sought to destroy the very underpinnings of Christianity. It taught that God the Father was superior to the Son and to the Holy Spirit and the fact that Jesus was a created being. 
This was clearly denounced and rejected. We have throughout history then ultimately with the culmination of what I said with uh, Augustine or Augustine of Hippo and others, uh, the Athanasian Creed, the Trinitarian theology comes into full focus for us. And throughout church history there have been debates. We say, well, there's been lots of debates about this doctrine and this topic of the Trinity. Sure, there has been. Sure, there will continue to be. But the reality is that there, are, there have always been heretics. There will always be heretics. There will be those who will constantly deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They are doing what they are. They are and what are they? They are of their father, the devil. So, for instance, there are always been, there, there has been from its earliest days, Arians. And we just simply call them by a different name today. We simply call them Jehovah Witnesses. They continue to deny that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist as the Scripture teaches. They, they would believe in a Father, they would believe in a Son, and they would believe in the Holy Spirit. So would the Mormons. The Mormons believe in the Father, they believe in the Son, and they believe in the Holy Spirit. And so they can even talk of, quote-unquote, the Trinity. But when you talk to a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or any other cult member, you need to understand and remember they do not mean the same things that we do when we say the word Trinity. They are Arians. They believe that Jesus came into being at some point, was created, and so was the Holy Spirit, and that the Trinity is not eternal and functionally eternal. Then we have those even today with us, Oneness Pentecostals and others who believe, like the modalists of old, that said that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are simply different, like three different masks that God wears. Just three different aspects of God. There are three different masks that God wears when he wants to be or do something different. Well, that seems ultimately silly, given that here in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all appear in our text. Then we have the Unitarians, as my uncle is one, and So they deny the doctrine of the Trinity altogether and assert that there's only one divine being and that Jesus isn't even divine and the Holy Spirit certainly not. And then, again, we go back to the Mormons and some of the others and we have the Tritheists. These suggest that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods rather than one God who exists in three persons. Now, why is any of this important? Well, it's important for us to understand because as we go back into the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you have a point of reference we have a point of reference for how we, how we are to look at Scripture, how we are to examine Scripture, right? Scripture is the best interpretation of Scripture, is the, best, is the best interpreter of Scripture. And so, for instance, in the Old Testament, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, how else, and I know there have been some who said, well, he was talking to the angels, but let me ask you a question. How much sense does that make? When he says, then God said, let us make a man in our image. We were not made in the image of angels. We were made in the image of God. And so when God says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness, though we certainly have to explain what that means, we understand that God is not having a conference call of sorts with the angels saying, well, you know, here's what I'm thinking, guys. But instead, he is having intercommunion and interconversation within himself and the Father and the Son and the Spirit equally agreeing and saying, let us make man in our image. Or again, in Genesis 3, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Again, it doesn't make sense to add the angels. The angels, by experiential 
by, by, their, by their work and by their labor. They don't know good and evil. They, they may understand what it is conceptually, but they have no understanding of it. And God, being the creator of all things, has a firm understanding and belief in it. And so therefore, he says, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And so they are kicked out of the garden. Or Genesis eleven seven, come, he says, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Again, this isn't speaking to the angels, but of himself and in himself. Or Isaiah 6, 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah 48, 16. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Psalm 2, 7. I would declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? And then there's this strange phrase that occurs at the end of this verse. And what is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know. Interesting. Zechariah 12.10 again affirms the same. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they have pierced. And so throughout the Old Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is there. It's, it just is. It is not something that is of New Testament origin. Now, certainly it is not as revealed in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. But clearly... You cannot escape the reality, even if we put aside the us language, we begin speaking of Jesus being declared as the Son of God at his baptism, as a testimony, not as an adoptive sense, but as a testimony. And what is his name, and what is his son's name, if you know? And Zechariah, the one who is pierced, now says he will pour out the spirit of grace and supplication. How do we explain any of that if the Trinity is of a New Testament concoction? But then we have the New Testament, and it's clear in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And let me just say this. I don't care how much Greek you know. I don't care how many lexicons you look at. It's singular, period. The name. Not names, but the name. Or again, what about John 1, 1 and one fourteen? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or Jesus' own words in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Or again, what about the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 26? But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, 
the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Or again, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It's something that you all should know because I, I, I go back and forth between the, the blessing there in Numbers and this blessing uh, every Sunday. If you attend here, you, you probably have heard this a couple of times. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Or even in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, and this will be the last scripture verse for now. But this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Notice that. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Interesting. One body, one spirit, one Father. And so if we believe this, and we do because we believe it is scriptural, what are some of the practical consequences of us believing this doctrine? Well, let me, let me, before, I, before I make some application, let, let, me, let me show you some of these practical consequences. For instance, we certainly must continue to acknowledge that the doctrine of the Trinity is mysterious. And I'm not, saying, I'm not standing up here this morning and saying to you, you, by the time I'm done here, will be able to completely explain it and will have it completely nailed down and no more questions for me. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that in the mystery of the Trinity, we come face to face with the unveiling of God's true essence in whom and through whom? Christ. John 1.18, it said clearly, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So because we cannot see God in all of his glory, like Moses even told this right in, back in, in Exodus, he says, Lord, show me your glory. And Moses says, no, you can't see my face and live, Moses. So he puts his hand over the cleft, of the, puts him in a cleft of the rock, he puts his hand over it, and he allows his back. Now, I don't know how uh, God has a back, so don't ask me that question. But understand that since God is spirit, he did something miraculous and special for Moses and allowed him to see something that only Moses was allowed to see. But understand this, because we cannot see God, God came to us and has revealed himself to us. Because remember what Philip said when it's coming time for Jesus to be crucified? Philip said, you know, Jesus, if you just show us the Father, it will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, have you been so long with me that you don't know? That you don't understand that to see me is to see the Father unveiled, unrevealed? Do you not understand that? But in all of this, I think it does bring us to the reality of the consequence that it does help us to better both understand the mystery of the Trinity as well as to revel in the fact that God chose to make himself known in Christ. And I think that's the first consequence. I, I think all too often in, in our Western mindsets, we have to be able to bring it all down and put it all together and make it all fit. And we have no concept of the beauty of mystery at times. And yet the Trinity remains mysterious. 
But not only that, but I would say there's another consequence in all of this, and that is that we each are able to better understand the work of the Trinity in our salvation. Each member of the Trinity, each member of the Godhead distinctively and collaboratively applies salvation and redeems sinners. It is the blood of Christ that is offered through the eternal spirit, writer of Hebrews says, without blemish to God, that is the Father, right? purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And I would say, the, thirdly, the triune God, the triune nature of God means he's eternally personal and relational, independent of his creation. He doesn't need us, but yet he chooses to love us and care for us and walk with us personally. And I would say this, you and I as God's people, we need to understand that within all of this, the Trinity really is and has been actively working to bring about our salvation and to be actively personal and relational with us. God is not distant and he's not some far off God, but he's very imminent. He's close to us through Christ. And I think another and so it helps us to see the personal nature and the relational nature of our God as we behold the Trinity. And I think, I think the last consequence is of the Trinity is that as, as such, the Father really does serve as, the, as, a, as a model of sorts for how or the, the God relates to us in a, in a way that we need to understand how you and I as Christians are to relate to one another. And are able to relate to one another because essentially biblical Christianity hinges on the Trinity and God's triune nature. So with all of that said, what are some application points for all of this? Other than understanding some good doctrine, well, let me say it like this. Let me, let me give you a couple here. First and foremost, let me tell you that God has given us the Trinity so that we can better understand the nature of God. What I mean by that is that the Holy Trinity helps Christians, you and I, Christ followers, comprehend the complex nature of God as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are united in one essence. And truthfully and honestly, that should cause us to worship. Because our God is he is, yes, he is able to be experienced and understood in the ways that he has told us that he is to be understood. But at the end of the day, believer, do you understand that our God is so massive that our finite brains can never truly, fully comprehend the incomprehensible nature of God himself? Though we were to spend 10 million times 10 billion years contemplating the nature of God, we could never understand the incomprehensible nature of what God truly is like were it not for the fact that God has revealed to us what he is like. In other words, no human being sat around on this earth thinking, let's see how we can make God. I know that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing for internet atheists to say. 
But no human being is capable of inventing a God so very simple and yet so very incomprehensible as the one we find in the pages of Scripture. And yet he has chosen to make himself known to you and I. I think also it helps us, it aids us as we understand this doctrine of the Trinity. I think build a stronger prayer life. Because we begin to understand that yes, we're praying in the name of Jesus, but the scripture clearly tells us we're praying to the Father, right? And we're praying in through the Spirit, in and through the Spirit, right? Because of the work of Christ. And so it's not just that we're praying, right? Just to hear ourselves talk. But rather, it's that we, knowing the roles of each of the persons in the Trinity, it enhances our prayer life by directing us properly and correctly in our praying. So that as we direct our prayers to the Father, we invoke the intercessory role of the Son and we seek guidance by the Holy Spirit. I grew up, uh, share something with you real quick. I grew up where I, I, I certainly understood or certainly was taught the doctrine of the Trinity, but I, I was always taught that, you know, you were to only focus on the Father and only pray in Jesus' name. And the Holy Trinity was just, or the, the Holy Spirit was just sort of hanging out out there somewhere. But believer, that is not biblical. That is not doctrinal, biblically doctrinal. That's not Bible doctrine. It's not biblically and doctrinally accurate in any way. Every time we bow our heads or we close our eyes or we just simply start praying to God, do you understand that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are actively engaged with you in your praying? And I think in this, as we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, we look at Christ because he is the one given to us, the Son of God. And I think as a result, we, we do understand that, and we, we have great worshipful understanding of what God has done for us, and that we can, in fact, rejoice in Christ for God's work. But I think in this, I think there's also an empowering experience that's given to us in grace and forgiveness. And what I mean by that is, is this. The doctrine of the Trinity emphasizes, it emphasizes God's glorious work to glorify himself through the work of the Son. And yet the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all involved in the work of the Son. Just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all involved in the work of creation. And so why would I say that we can experience grace and forgiveness or we can, we can experience this? Well, ultimately, we can experience it from the, from the standpoint of Christ's redemptive work on the cross and through his resurrection. But it goes beyond that, right? It goes beyond just experiencing that we get a, a check mark or we get a card that says Jesus loves you. It's not that. It is that in Christ's death, we experience union with Christ. And as a result, we are given 
the assurance of salvation. We are the love of God, as John would write, the Apostle John would write, is shed abroad into our hearts. And that we really do have the love of the, of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the, the fellowship with the Spirit who is at work. And so by being united with Christ, we are also, we are also able to experience fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Spirit. In understanding the Trinity, I think we also have to understand that it is empowering spiritually. Because it is not just one or the other member of the Trinity's uh, members of the members of the Trinity that's acting, but rather it is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who are constantly acting in our lives to grow us into the grace of God, to grow us into the character of Christ, to grow us into the to producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You understand this, right? You and I can do nothing if the triune, sovereign God does not act on our behalf. I think also it helps us to do, to do three final things. One, it helps us to share the gospel. You know, I think the reason why a lot of people ask the following question is because they don't understand how to preach the gospel. Well, here's what I mean. You'll hear people say, well, do I have to understand the Trinity? Does someone have to understand the Trinity in order to be saved? Well, let me ask you a question. What kind of gospel are you preaching? If that is the question. Because you have clearly not preached the law of God. And you've clearly not preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not Jesus died for your sins and he loves you, so just 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 sort of like go willy-nilly toward it and believe and you're you're done. Any biblical preaching of the gospel encompasses man's rebellion and sinfulness against the holiness of God, our triune God. And that it was the Father who sent the Son, and it's the Son who sends the Spirit. So to ask the question means that you must be preaching a gospel that is not biblical. Any gospel that truncates the work of Christ or truncates the work of the Trinity, it's not the gospel. The gospel is not God loves you and has a great plan for your life. We recognize and we preach and call sinners to embrace the Trinity's unique role in salvation, helping them understand the Father is the one who sent, the Son is the one who dies and rises again, and the Spirit is the one who draws and applies. But it is the members of the Trinity, not separated from one another, that saves sinners. And it helps us to balance good theology. Because theologically, to understand each member's roles of the Trinity within the Christian life, it really does help us to avoid the common fit pitfalls and, how, and, and subordinating one member of the Trinity or both two members of the Trinity to the other. Listen, I'm, I'm just going to tell you right now, there is a, there is a heresy that is out there called eternal functional submission or subordination. It's wrong. The Son is not inferior to the Father. That's basically what it says. The Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. It's wrong. 
Jesus is not subordinate to the Father in its role, certainly, but in his purpose and his essence, God is, we, as we say in the Athanasian Creed, we do not, God is perfect, he is what the Father is, the Son is, and what the Son is, the Spirit is, and there's not one God, the Father, who's like really big and tall, and there's and then below him is the Son, and then below him is the Spirit. Mm-mm, that's not how this works. And so we help by understanding the Trinity. It gives us a balanced sense of theology. It helps us to avoid the common pitfalls and subordinating one or both two members of the, of the, of the Trinity and collapsing the Trinity into some sort of, sort of a single unity and we end up becoming modalists. But I think lastly then, it helps us in our worship. What do you mean by helping us in our worship? Well, we understand that as we come together, right, we're not just worshiping the Father. We're not just worshiping the Son. We're not just worshiping the Holy Spirit. What are we doing? As we come together in corporate worship, in corporate settings, we readily acknowledge and we can sing to the glory of the Father And then we can sing another song to the glory of the Son. And then in the third song we can sing of of the glorious work of the Spirit in our lives. And have done nothing wrong. Because we better understand the work and the role of the Trinity in our lives. And in this local church, each member of the Trinity is to be acknowledged. He is to be honored. He is to be loved. He is to be adored. To set the Spirit up, whether we mean to or not, as some kind of inferior being to the Father and the Son is complete heresy. So my brothers and sisters, as we come together and we worship, we understand that it is in the power of the Trinity. It is the Trinity that we're worshiping. It's in the power of the Trinity that we're worshiping. And it's for the glory of the Trinity that we worship. So yes, it must, we must be careful, as St. Augustine said. Right? We must be careful that we not create something that is error, right? as he said, and no other subject is error more dangerous and inquiry more difficult or the discovery of truth more rewarding. But brothers and sisters, let me be clear. To deny the Trinity is to deny Christ. To deny the doctrine of the Trinity is to deny Christ. If you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you do not have the Jesus of the Scriptures. And to not have the Jesus of the Scriptures is to have a Jesus of your own creating. And to have a Jesus of your own creating is to create a demonic entity, not the God of the Bible. We must embrace this doctrine to which you would say, well, I do, I do. Well, then, believer, let's act like it. And let's live like it. And let's worship like it. For the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
us pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have come face to face with a very different, difficult doctrine, but it is a, a doctrinal truth and the gospel truth nonetheless. And so God, help us not to stray from the truth of Scripture. Let us not stray into heresy or error. Let us not stray into false teaching, but stay firm and resolved, even if we don't fully quite understand everything that we've heard today. Help us to fully give ourselves to the teaching and the doctrine of, of the Scripture so that we can fully and properly and rightly understand the gospel of the, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that it is a Trinitarian truth, and that it is a Trinitarian gospel. So help us now, we pray. Help us and guide us in Jesus' name.